You know, an episode almost entirely devoted to the relationship between Crusher and Picard never goes anywhere. An episode where it's kind of almost as a side joke, as part of a B-plot of the rest of the episode, that's suddenly going to be carrying forward. Although only till all good things, at which point it will rather suddenly be torpedoed and ejected, because it won't come up in Generations or First Contact, and then Riker will get back together with Troy in Insurrection, while Worf will go on to, you know, be with Dax over in D-Space 9. I thought I'd share a couple thoughts about this, though. Uh, we were talking about how we wanted to marry Riker and Troy. We thought the fans would love that. Michael and Rick didn't care for the idea. Michael wanted to explore the Worf-Troy relationship. The actors were not happy, happy about it. Marana... Marina? Marina Sirtis, yeah. Has always maintained that Riker is her imzadi. And and th th I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's like se it's almost half a page of people talking about how dumb this whole idea is. But I have to add one last bit here. One of the this is also Rene Echeverria. One of the biggest regrets I have is the impression we've given time and time again that none of the characters is capable of having a genuine relationship. It is something the fans are aware of and are disappointed by. I think it would have been the right thing to at least bring one of those relationships all the way home. Just food for thought. I've often wondered why uh, every other show has felt the need to have at least one long-term relationship. I find myself wondering if TNG is part of why. TNG has no long-term relationships. None. The Picard-Crusher thing never actually concludes. No, really. In fact, as of me recording this, Beverly Crusher is not on the cast list for the Picard show, which I know by the time this goes live will have come out, so maybe we'll see if she's actually in it by then. And uh, the Riker-Troy thing... That kind of drifted in and out a little bit, but only really came up in one of the movies. Keiko and O'Brien? Eh, kind of counts, but mostly shifted over to Deep Space Nine. That's it. No one else has any ep relationship that lasts longer than two episodes in the entirety of TNG. That's kind of sad. I'm not even into romance, and I think that's sad. But again, I go back to what Echeverria said. A genuine relationship an actual long-term commitment. Maybe that's why they kept pushing people onto Nana Visitor to see what would stick. No pun intended. Anyways, <clears throat> this is a Braga script, and I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I really like this episode. It's on my VHS list, and anybody who knows me is probably going to be really weirded out by that, because this is a Parallel Timelines episode, and I don't like Parallel Timelines. I don't. Um, but... <laughs> I have to admit, it's kind of an established part of TNG, or Star Trek in general, it, and it, the way they approach it is actually reasonably logical and does make a degree of sense. We do know that there are at least four major concurrent timelines across Star Trek canonicity. There's the Kelvin timeline, right, that started with the Abrams stuff. There's the, what's usually referred to as the Prime timeline. Actually, that's been canonized, by the way. Uh, Giorgio, over in Discovery, actually refers to her as, as her Prime counterpart. Or her, the counterpart of her prime. You get my point. So that's actually, you know, in universe, they refer to it as prime universe now. So there's the prime universe, the Kelvinverse, the mirror universe, which shows up all the time. I've talked about that in Deep Space Nine, of course. And we'll be talking about that soon-ish. I'm not sure when, but Emperor's New Cloak is an episode we're talking about sometime this month or last month or whatever. And then there's the other one. I'm not actually going to talk about the fourth one because it's actually spoilers for Star Trek Online. All I'm going to say, it's probably the most clever of the various timelines. Anyways, so keeping these four 
straight is actually relatively easy because there's clear delineations between them and clear methods by, by which you can communicate and transfer across them, which is also available. And each of them happens as a direct result of time travel and alteration. This does lead to what is effectively a form, a, a mutant variant of Type 3 time travel, since one of these was crafted by time travel, but the others apparently just existed thanks to the natural law of the universe. I also have to admit I really like the book Q Squared, which basically takes this idea and runs with it. So, yeah, a little bit of bias there. What can I say? I like Peter David. Anywho, <clears throat> so the episode starts, and right off the bat he's not in the Prime Universe. In fact, we only see the Prime Universe at the very end, after he wakes up on the shuttle. So everything else is in one of the other timelines. Now, I th it's hard for me to discuss this, because all I can say is, it's in the details. But, it's in the details. It's one of the things I really enjoy about this episode. There's a lot of attention to detail on many points. Very clever and creative stuff. And they, they're very consistent about it, too. They make a point of only changing things once there's been a shift. And they try to make sh make it clear tracking the shifts so you can always tell when a shift happens and you can start to play spot the changes, right? Some of those changes are very, very minor. Uh, the first one I noticed was the cake changing from chocolate to yellow or whatever. Um, there's also Picard suddenly being able to attend. There's Data and Jordy switching position and Picard's not there at all. Uh, you know, etc., etc. There are several little details and shifts that go throughout. <clears throat> so Worf walks into a surprise party, not in the prime timeline, as a quick aside. And <laughs> I have to admit, I actually hate surprise parties myself. Oh, I like a party, not a surprise party. Don't try to jump one on me, guys. I am already kind of touchy, and my reflexes aren't great, and I'm just going to be like, ah, and probably accidentally hit someone as I'm flailing. Because you shocked the hell out of me. Don't do that. Don't ever give me a surprise party. Me and my friends and family, we all have various deals concurrent across us. And one of those is no surprise parties. Another is we never do the thing at restaurants where you tell the restaurant person that it's their birthday. So they come over and sing the song. We never do that to each other. We both, we all hate it. I say we both. So then they sing Jolly Good Fellow. I hate that song. But it's free. If you ever wonder why television in general and Star Trek in specific uses for He's a Jolly Good Fellow, it's because they don't have to pay licensing fees to use it. The Happy Birthday song does include licensing fees. Seriously. Even back in the 90s, this was true. If I was to sing the Happy Birthday song right now, I'd probably get copy-wronged. <sighs> Anyways. So, they go to redirectate his room. Um, there's a really cool scene where Alexander has made a ridge, a cast of his forehead ridges and given it to Worf. And Worf's obviously really happy about it. I have to admit, that is really cool. My own mother actually has a painting of my handprints when I was, well, about half this size. It's actually maybe even smaller. I was really young. And and she she loves that. She still has that painting to this day. So I, I can kind of get the, the analogy there. It's just a cool little moment. Um, there's also a bit where he asks Troy to become the godmother, basically. He, he calls it something else, but what he's describing is he wants her to be Alexander's godmother. Funnily enough, I thought she already was, but whatever, let's formalize it. Sure. And what I really love is not only is it a nice human, which is funny because neither of the people present are humans, but you know, it's a nice human moment. 
but it also shows how uh, how much he respects Troy, how much he values her, not in a romantic way, just in general. And as an addendum to that, it's also a funny moment. You realize this would make Loxana your godmother. I didn't realize that. Oh God, it's worth it. I'd still, I'm still gonna do it. I mean, after all, Loxana and Alexander get along pretty well, anyways. So, then we go check out the Argus Array. Funnily enough, this is actually the same array. They reuse graphics all the time in this show. I try not to comment on it unless it's a big deal. Like, virtually every ship you see that's just a random NPC ship has probably been seen at least five other times across the show. They do this all the time. But this is actually the Argus Array from the nth degree. It's kind of a neat little callback there, but more to the point, we find out the relative power of this thing. Now, I know there's no official map of the galaxy, because I don't know why, but I like to go by Star Trek Online's rough map. So we got the Beta Quadrant, we got the Alpha Quadrant. Cardassians are over there, right next to Bajor in the Alpha Quadrant. Pretty far out. There's a reason it's called Deep Space Nine, right? So they're way over there. Earth is way the hell over there. Now, why is this relevant? Because the Argus Array, which is on the border of Cardassian territory, can see... An image from Mars, the Utopia, the Utopia Planitia. That is an insanely detailed and, and incredibly amazing array. Holy crap. I am actually legit impressed. Even in Star Trek standards, that's some scanning tech right there. Makes sense, though. We have telescopes in real life that can see very, very, very far, but, you know, it's just obviously we're limited by the tech and the standards of the time. So it makes sense if you have this city-sized array, you can use it to such extent. You can also see why the Cardassians are so worried about this thing. <laughs> Frankly, just about everyone should be. Anywho, <clears throat> so, then we have our next shift. The tournament kind of changes. Hey, quick question, where are all the other wharfs going? We actually see the Prime Universe calls up and there's a wharf there. Are they all displaced, too? I mean, that's actually possible, and that's always been my headcanon, but they never actually answer that question. Anyways, <clears throat> so he goes down to Crushers, and this is the weakest part of the episode for me, and this is one of the reasons why this doesn't sit in the top ten for me, for, uh, for TNG episodes. Because then they pull a Cassandra Truth thing. Come on, Braga, you just, you got this right with Timescape. But nobody believes him. Oh, no, you're just a moron, or you're tired, or you have a concussion, or what. You know, you can scan him, Crusher. You can just scan him to see if he has a concussion, because he doesn't. And lo and behold, that would suddenly reveal the truth. But no, can't do that. It actually legitimately irritates me when they pull this. You'd think after seven-ish years, six and a half years at this point, they learn to trust him, especially on this ship, when he says something ain't right. Especially after such demonstrable events have happened to change things. It takes Deanna, th that is to say, wife Deanna, to be the one to believe him. Now, that makes sense, whether she's his wife or not, because she could probably go... and melt his brain. I mean, detect his emotions. But, of course, they don't even mention that. Instead, it's just all about the fact that she's his wife. I'm sorry, I just really hate Cassandra Truth, especially this late in the game with someone that everyone should trust implicitly. <sighs> so, whatever. They, the inevitable happens and there's a shift into battle. We all kind of saw that coming, unfortunately. That, that's kind of, I mean, that is kind of inevitable. 
he keeps having relatively peaceful shifts, but at some point or another he's going to shift to a timeline where events are substantially different, and lo and behold, the very layout of his console is so different, he doesn't know how to use it. And that causes some problems. They lose the array and people die. So, I'm sorry. I actually I cut ahead a little bit to the Troy thing, because that actually doesn't happen for a bit. What happens next is LaForge dies. Actually, that happens next, next, next. I'm getting way off topic. Oh, all these timelines are so hard to keep track. No, it, it, what actually happens is the next scene, which is admittedly very, very cute. He goes back to his quarters. Thankfully, they are his quarters. And Troy's there. And she's acting exactly as she should. Because Marina Sirtis is a good actress. And he's just so confused. There's just this weird uncertainty and hesitance. And the best part is he kind of... Actually, I guess I'll, I'll do it like this. He kind of, like, peeks out <laughs> of the door, like, what are you doing on my bed? He doesn't say anything. It's just, it's it's really adorable. And then, of course, she tries to get him to relax. This is when she, we find out she's his wife. Holy crap. She finally believes him. Then they go to try and figure out what the hell's happening, and they figure, okay, we've got a theory. We actually do have a theory going now, and we think there's something going on with these shifts. Okay. By the way, I love the blue eyes on Data. It's just a very minor touch, but it, it's, again, lots of little details. I love it. Wesley coming back in. Basically, near as I can tell, what they did was they reached out to Wheaton and said, Hey, could you do us a favor? We just want you in as, as like a cameo thing. Originally, it was actually going to be Denise Crosby. They decided not to do that just because they didn't want to have it to feel like yesterday's Enterprise which is actually kind of a damn shame. I personally would have t gone ahead and ponied up for her to be in at least one of the realities, even just if it was a one-off. <sighs> at least she comes back for, you know, all good things. Anyways, <clears throat> I mean, they, they managed to put one of the dudes in Cardassian makeup in the con, and they redid the dressing of the, of the Enterprise bridge several times. Whatever, whatever. So, LaForge is dead. Now LaForge is dead. Now, that's, this kind of bothers me a little bit, because no one seems to give a damn. Like, after the initial, Jordy's dead. No, everyone else is just kind of, is just like, all right, yeah, now we got to figure out this intriguing situation with Worf. His corpse is right there, being covered by a very small <laughs> uh, modesty cloth, by the way. And they're like, okay, let's figure this out. Okay, so they go activate the, the, the visor, and it's like, all right, that's the trigger. A couple things change. Now they're wearing the future imperfect insignia. Nice touch. They're married, but now they have children. Um, a few other little shifts happen. You know, Ogawa isn't even present. You know, Dr. Ogawa, that's interesting. And, of course, Jordy's, Jordy's modesty cloth has shrunk from about this to about this. I want to know who LeVar uh, Burton pissed off that day, because he just has to lay there, like, basically naked. With about six square, that's an exaggeration, six inches by six inches square of cloth. So a 36 square inch cloth just, just covering his junk like, oh, yep, yep, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm not in the rest of this episode. <sighs> Anyways. So, uh, they find out everything. Troy, Troy has this actually pretty good moment where she has to come to grips with, A, the fact that there's a wharf out there that doesn't love her something that never occurred to her before. And B, well, they have children. But so does he. 
and he his children are missing for her, and her children are missing for him. And it's actually kind of a nice moment of bonding, as the two are parents who have basically lost their children across dimensions. And there's just this sort of, you know, there's this moment there. It's a good moment. I like it. I shouldn't say dimensions. That's actually inaccurate. This is realities, to be very clear. In Star Trek lingo, dimensions is stuff that all exists within a single reality. An alternate reality is a completely different chunk, kind of like mirror universe, Kelvin, etc. And then there's existence, which is all the realities all combined. So there we go. Let's, get, let's get the hierarchy correct here. So the Bajorans, huh? The Bajorans are violent and brutal and evil. I shouldn't say that. Can you blame the Bajorans if they became an aggressive, violent power? Imagine if they actually successfully beat the Cardassians, took over the Cardassians, and then turned into something worse than the Cardassians, because honestly, I could see that happening. Yeah. Um, then there's probably my favorite line of the whole episode. Sir, we're getting 285,000 hails. <laughs> and there's lots of calm traffic. I like that, by the way. It's a very subtle background thing, but it indicates that you know the Enterprises are talking to each other regardless of this Enterprise, the one we happen to be watching right now. It's a good touch. Also, I'm going to mention something I haven't talked about in a long time. So I'm watching the Blu-rays for this, right? This is actually my first time watching the Blu-ray editions. And I usually don't bring up the Blu-ray graphics, because, I mean, there's not much to talk about. They touched up the CGI stuff and the, the ship stuff. They touched up the effects. It looks better. It looks great, actually. This is phenomenal, and I love watching this show in this manner. Maybe if they do this for Deep Space Nine... <clears throat> But what I want to bring up is the scene where all the Enterprises are popping in looks amazing on the Blu-ray, in my opinion. It really gets across, and you can really see the tiny little details of all the Enterprises in the distance. It's just a good shot, and it's, I just wanted to comment on that. So they're like, okay, we've got the solution. We can do this. We can figure it out. Uh, we just need to find... Ah, there it is. There's Prime Enterprise. Hi, Prime Enterprise. I see you have a wharf. Picard! Wow, you're alive. Oh, God, that's weird. It's been four years. Anyways, hi. Uh, listen, we're going to send Worf over there. We need your shuttle, the Curie. Thanks. And they send him over, and one of the Enterprise starts firing on the Curie. This is kind of a throwaway, but it sticks with you. Because we see a few seconds of the Borg-infested universe. The Borg-infested reality. And... I want you to consider William Riker for a second, okay? I want you to consider how composed he is, how moral he is, how ethical, how intended to help and take care of, how composed. Now I want you to imagine what it would take to turn that man, who is in many ways a legitimately heroic figure, and I want you to picture what would it take to turn him into that raving lunatic who will actively try to murder an innocent man just to stay away from the Borg. Now sit and think about that for a minute. Some people kind of make fun of me when I try to exemplify the threat, the dread, that the Borg really personify. That right there, that's the Borg. Yeah. <clears throat> they all die. Yay. It's okay, all the events of the episode are basically undone when it's reverted. And he goes back, and uh, we see a cool shot of Seven Wharfs. It's actually a really cool shot. Good job there. And he gets reverted back to the prime timeline where Troy talked him out of it. And they start a relationship, because I've already complained about that. I don't have anything else to add to that. The end. Now, 
I do like this episode. I think I made that very clear. But I have a question for you guys. And I, I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but what do you think of the Wharf Troy thing? Honest question. Because part of my disdain is that it doesn't make sense to me. Part of it is because it feels like it's going in the wrong direction. It, uh... <sighs> Jonathan Frakes made a comment that it, it makes for good material at conventions, but it doesn't work for character progression. And I actually agree with him. It feels like a change for change's sake, or we ran out of ideas. Now, I know this had been planned off and on since Season 5. I get that. I talked about that myself. It's just, this doesn't feel like a logical progression. Worf and Dax worked a lot better, as I think I talked about uh, over the DS9 stuff. The Worf and Dax thing actually worked better for me than I remembered. Like, it it, it kind of started off bumpy and had some severe issues, but by the end of Season 6, there was something real going on there, and there was some good chemistry, and I was with it. Worf and Troy? Uh-uh. Not even for a second. I guess that's all I got for this one. Looking forward to your thoughts as always. I'll see you next time.